Hey, listeners, this is Bob Ambrogi, and I want to let you know there's a brand new show on the Legal Talk Network about the First Amendment. It's called Make No Law. Here's a quick trailer about the show. News and pop culture are full of controversies about free speech and the First Amendment. We hear terms like hate speech and heckler's veto in a barrage of coverage about campuses, protests, and even wedding cakes. But what does it all mean, and how did we get here? That's exactly what my new show, Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from Hopat.com, will explore. I'm Ken White, and I invite you to tune in every month for the history, stories, and personalities behind the right to free speech and the most important Supreme Court cases establishing it. You can find Make No Law on LegalTalkNetwork.com, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. And now on to Lawyer to Lawyer. It'll be interesting to see where this ends up, having essentially punted to General Kelly. If he follows standard norms, it would appear that these you know, political appointees will not be able to obtain clearance just due to the nature of their backgrounds. In my view, an abuse and a politicization of this process by the way this administration has allowed individuals with red flags popping up in the investigation to nonetheless continue with interim access and to simply deflect and say, oh, we're still waiting on the adjudication. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Lost Sites and also host Another podcast here on Legal Talk Network called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. And I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and a book out called The Sled. And before we get to today's topic, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsor of today's program. Today's sponsor is Clio. Clio is a cloud-based practice management software which makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free by going to Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, Bob, last month, Jared Kushner, senior advisor and son-in-law to President Trump, had his security clearance downgraded. According to an article in the Washington Post, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein called White House counsel Don McGahn on February 9th to tell him there were significant issues with Kushner's clearance and that he was currently keeping him from gaining a permanent clearance. On the matter at hand, President Trump is leaving the decision to his chief of staff, John Kelly, stating in a news conference, I'll let General Kelly make that decision, and he's going to do what's right for the country, and I have no doubt that he will make the right decision. So the question remains, what led to Kushner's security clearance downgrade, and is having Jared Kushner remain a senior advisor to the president? Is it a threat to national security? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this general issue of security clearances at the uh, law and procedure around it. And we'll take a closer look also at Jared Kushner's recent security clearance downgrade, uh, levels of clearance, the overhauling of security clearance process by John Kelly, and uh, the loss of security clearance by 30 of President Trump's aides and the impact. 
Well, Bob, to do that, we've got a great lineup for our guest today. Our first guest is attorney Bradley P. Moss from the law office of Mark S. Zaid, PC. Brad specializes in litigation on matters relating to national security, federal employment, and security clearance law, as well as the Freedom of Information Act and Privacy Act. Welcome to the show, Brad Moss. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Also joining us today is Evan H. Lesser. Evan is co-founder and president of clearancejobs.com. Before founding Clearance Jobs, he managed technical projects with CACI for the U.S. Navy's Science and Technology Directorate at the Pentagon and for the Joint Technology Panel on Electronic Warfare. Previously, he worked for Boeing on its Reserve Component Automation System Program for the U.S. Army in Metro Washington. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Evan Lesser. Thanks so much. Good to talk with you. Well, as we get started, let's take a look at the overall perspective of security clearances and how they work within the executive branch and who's required to have them in order to do what. So, Brad, let's start with you if you can do that. Sure. So, the entire security clearance process is derived from executive order uh, issued by the president. The current ones have been issued originally by President Clinton and have been updated and modified by Presidents Bush and Obama. And what they outline the process is that anybody who requires access to U.S. government classified information at any level, confidential, secret, or top secret, those individuals have to undergo a security clearance vetting, uh, which includes submitting very detailed paperwork called the SF-86. It's a 127-page questionnaire that asks pretty much every question you can imagine about your life. They also have to undergo what's called the National Agency Check, which looks into your criminal history, as well as a uh, credit report to check your financial background. The purpose and the uh, nature of the investigation is to look into any number of things in your background that would pose a risk that would make it so that the government would not want to permit you to have the privilege of access to classified information. It could be personal financial problems, if you have a history of financial insolvency, It could be personal criminal history, alcohol problems, drug problems, uh, extensive foreign connections that would put you at risk of uh, exploitation, any number of things along those lines. And the purpose of this process is to uh, pull out the entirety of your background and to make sure that when someone is granted access, that the government is confident that that person can, in fact, be trusted with that access and it doesn't pose a risk to national security. And what does it mean, Bradley uh, Moss? What does it what does it mean to get a security clearance? What does that do for somebody? Sure. So the only individuals who can be vetted for a clearance are those who have been sponsored for access. So that typically is military officials, political appointees, U.S. government uh, civilian employees, or contractors on U.S. government contracts. There's no process by which a private citizen, just because they like the idea, can get vetted for clearance. Only those who are vetted are those who are specifically sponsored in furtherance of U.S. government projects and work. And to be granted the clearance, depending on the level at which you're granted, affords you access to certain levels of classified databases, classified email accounts, and hard copies of classified documentation. If you think of different types of particular work that people do, I think of a linguist or an intelligence officer at the CIA or at the FBI, they're going to require access to certain types of information in order to perform their position responsibilities, in order to uh, translate documentation, in order to uh, analyze intercepts of communications between foreign nationals, anything along those lines. 
those are the basic, you know, nuts and bolts of how the classified arena works. And in order to perform that work, you have to have been cleared for access at different levels. Are there levels of security clearances or types of security clearance? Sure. So the level of, there are three levels of classified information, and there are clearances for each corresponding level. So there's confidential, which is the lowest, secret, and then top secret. And the difference in the levels merely reflects the sensitivity of the information at issue and the extent to which unauthorized disclosure of it would harm national security. So the higher level of classification, the greater sensitivity, the more damage that would be caused if that information was ever exposed to unauthorized individuals. Beyond those three levels, there are compartmentalized accesses that aren't different levels of classification so much as it is separated programs to which you are additionally allowed to be granted access on specific as-needed bases. This is called sensitive compartmentalized information, also known as SCI. There's another term also that's used. It's called special access programs or SAPs. These are particular programs into which individuals, as part of their work responsibilities for the U.S. government, will be specifically briefed, be specifically read in onto the particular program's details. They'll sign additional non-disclosure paperwork as part of their work on that specific program. And at such time that they no longer require access to that program as part of their work, they are debriefed or read off the program. And what role does the relationship, the familial relationship between Kushner and Trump play in this issue? Well, this has presented a very unique and unconventional problem for the government to face because since Robert Kennedy served as attorney general, there has been an institutional custom that family members do not serve in the government. There's an anti-nepotism law that Congress passed in the wake of RFK serving as attorney general that was meant to prevent a recurrence of that type of situation where you couldn't be uh, working at, say, as the secretary of housing and urban development and have your son working as a senior official as a federal employee. It was specifically designed to prevent that, to avoid nepotism, to avoid a problem of uh, having a senior management official, having a family member working with them who would then have a different type of employer-employee relationship than everybody else. When the president came into office, the Department of Justice issued a new memo and new guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel reversing decades of institutional precedent and saying that the anti-nepotism law did not apply to White House staff, that the president was still permitted, notwithstanding the anti-nepotism law, to hire family members to serve specifically as White House staffers. That's why Jared Kushner and later Ivanka Trump were allowed to come on as senior advisors to the president. So now you have a problem here where you have a family member who, you know, with a, serving the president, and the president is very notorious for his loyalty to his family members and demanding loyalty from people who work for him, being vetted for clearances, presumably, and at least ostensibly, on the same standards and guidelines as everybody else working for the U.S. government. But now you're a security official vetting Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, knowing that if you conclude that they can't be interested with access to classified information, you're going against the president's own children. And so it raises a significant problem from an ethical standpoint and from a bureaucratic standpoint of how we handle this scenario and how we ensure that these two individuals, Jared and Ivanka, if they are in fact ultimately granted fully adjudicated clearances, 
are done so on the merits and appropriately and properly and consistently with the adjudicative guidelines and not as an exception to the rule because they're the president's kids. Evan, do you see the same issue? Uh, are you at all concerned about the family relationship here and the implications of that for the security clearance? Well, I think the um, the main problem that um, we're coming up against right now, um, uh, as was alluded to, is, is the fact that we're we're kind of in uncharted um, territory at, at this point. Um, in modern times, there have not been people in the White House who are you know appointed into um, fairly high level roles that have the type of backgrounds that we see um, presently. So you know uh, you've got a, a lot of people who are. Um, advising the president who are not career civil servants. They have not been in government. Um, and in, in fact, they're coming from backgrounds that are you know, heavy into business. You, you've got people with some extensive foreign ties. You've got people with extensive debt. Um, even if they have a high um, uh, amount of income, they, they still have a lot of debt uh, you know, due to the nature of their businesses. Um, you've got people with a very you know, public um, persona. Um, they're not unknown. They're, they're highly known to the world, and that could actually open them up for, um, you know, potential for, for bribery or coercion. So, you know, it, it's really difficult to, to understand where we're at at this point and, and what the proper solution may be, simply because this is all so brand new. If you think about typical uh, appointees to White House roles, these are people that have you know, pretty ordinary backgrounds, Traditionally, they've, they've you know been career civil servants. They probably have had security clearances in the past. Um, you know, frankly, their lives may look a little a little boring compared to the, the current White House. But um, I think really that that's the issue that we're in is you know do we follow concepts that have been put in place over the last um, many many decades and follow those, or at, at this point you know it, are, is everything kind of up for grabs and it, it's a brand new situation with with brand new norms being created. So, uh, again, it's just extremely new for, for everybody. And what are the consequences if it turns out that Kushner's clearance doesn't get approved is, or is revoked? Now that he's reviewed sensitive documents, how do we unring that bell? Yeah, you, you really can't necessarily unring um, the bell. Um, once you've seen um, high levels of classified information, um, it's not like you can just forget it. But what is done is that someone who undergoes the clearance process and essentially is taking a statement of oath and saying that uh, they're going to agree to certain terms that the government puts forth, um, and, and I'm talking in, in, a, in a general sense, that even if you um, have a security clearance level at a high level and you've seen certain bits of information, that even when you no longer have a clearance, um, you know, divulging that information um, can be seen as, as a federal offense. So it's really important to understand that people with clearances, once they lose a clearance, just don't immediately go out and start writing books and, and, and letting that information out. It, it's part of having a, a clearance is, is being able to maintain um, that secrency over time. Now, in, in, the, in the current White House, um, it does pose some problems because it's still unknown as to whether some of the political appointees are actually going to be able to get a final clearance. The kind of issue that we've seen um, in the last few weeks is that, you know, technically if the president wanted to grant someone um, a clearance, um, all he has to do is, is simply raise his hand and say, I, I want this person to have one, uh, and they'd get one. Now, where we're running into some trouble is trying to compare um, someone like a, uh, a family member to the president to an ordinary, you know, security cleared worker, someone who's a 
you know, uh, doing uh, finance or accounting work or uh, running a network or something very, very uh, ordinary type of work. Um, you know, these are radically different people. And you know, if they are granted security clearances, um, how they take that into their uh, post-White House lives um, could be an issue. Uh, at the same time, um, if they are, uh, you know, denied a clearance outright, you know, what does that mean for, uh, for the future in, in terms of bringing people onto uh, White House staff that, you know, may be in a similar, uh, a similar space? Um, it'll be interesting to see where this ends up, you know, having essentially punted um, to, um, to General Kelly. If he follows standard norms, it would appear that um, these, you know, political appointees will not be able to obtain clearance just due to the nature of their backgrounds. Brad, on your uh, Twitter page, I can't help but notice that the big banner atop the cross of the page says, the Trump White House is making a mockery of the security clearance process. What do you mean by that? Is it more than what you've already said? Sure. So that particular, that banner came from a, uh, a column I wrote uh, a few weeks ago in the wake of some of the stories about Jared Kushner and the interim access and the problems he was having. What that was referring to, and this is kind of uh, expanding upon what Evan was talking about, we have a specific and particular issue with this administration in terms of abuse of interim access um, the, or an interim security clearance. So the idea of interim security clearances existed for a long time. There's plenty of legitimate reasons for it. The idea is that you bring in an individual whose particular skill sets are immediately needed. The assignment has to be addressed immediately. But the vetting process, especially for high-level security clearance, top secret, top secret with SCI access, things along those lines, takes months. It can easily take six to 12 months, depending on the background of the individual and how much has to be investigated and how complicated it is. So with an interim clearance, it gives the person access to classified information while that investigation is ongoing. And to grant someone interim access, all that generally occurs is the agency who is investigating it, usually the FBI or OPM, will review the standard form 86, that security questionnaire. They'll run the national agency check in terms of criminal history, and they'll run a credit report. And if no immediate major red flags pop up in that initial review, they will grant the interim access with the understanding that that doesn't mean you ultimately will get a full security clearance. It just means for the moment you are being permitted access to this information. Now, where we have a problem with this administration and the interim access is granting it or permitting the continuation of the granting of an interim access when clear problems and red flags have emerged in the course of the investigation. We saw that with Rob Porter, the former White House staff secretary, where the FBI warned the White House on more than one occasion that there were red flags coming up in the investigation about the domestic abuse allegations. In a typical rank-and-file situation for one of my clients, what would almost always happen in that type of situation is the person's interim access would have been withdrawn the moment that red flag popped up in the investigation. They would have been put on administrative leave, sent home, and told, you will now have to wait until the investigation finishes and until an adjudication is made on whether or not to grant you access or not, and you can't come back until that's done. It is, in my view, an abuse and a politicization of this process. By the way, this administration has allowed individuals with red flags popping up in the investigation to nonetheless continue with interim access and to simply deflect and say, oh, we're still waiting on the adjudication. 
It's not an illegal act. It's certainly still within their legal authority to do this, but it is a subjective determination they're making that abuses the need and the concept of an interim clearance in a way that is not afforded to rank and file officials. And what are the violations for this situation? Is it a circumstance where a violation is punishable by more than just revoking the clearance? And what about the other players in this whole thing? And as kind of a companion to that question, is this really a significant problem or is this something we see in every administration, these number of issues? Well, let's just go to Evan. So, you know, as I mentioned before, we're definitely in, in uncharted territory because, you know, most interim clearances are, are technically supposed to expire after 12 months. Um, there's occasionally an option to add another six months on complicated uh, cases, but you know, what we're seeing now is, um, is brand new. We've got interim clearances that have, have gone, you know, 12 plus months. I think what probably should have happened <clears throat> from the start is to realize that someone with such a complicated background as, as some of the people who have been appointed in these, these senior advisory roles, we're never going to get a clearance to begin with unless the president simply said, I don't care about their background. I need them to have a clearance for their job. And that's really probably would have uh, alleviated a huge amount of confusion and issues if from the start the president had just simply said, listen, these people are are not going to be able to get one if we use the standard procedures because of their backgrounds. So let's just go ahead and get them a clearance. You know, this this is on me. Let's get it done. That would have been a much cleaner, um, clearer way. By trying to put someone who is inherently known to you know not be able to get a clearance through the process um i can see where some people might say you know it's it's kind of making a mockery or spitting in the face of of the traditional process you know these are not traditional people these are not typical people these these are um extremely complex people with extremely complicated backgrounds and the chances of them ever being able to get a clearance if they were applying for a typical contractor role is just absolutely none um just due to the nature of their backgrounds so, you know, where we end up, um, I really don't know. But interim clearances in general um, are fairly low risk because people who understand that they have a problematic or sketchy or complicated background usually don't put themselves up for a clearance investigation. Um, if you look at the total number of uh, interim clearances that are actually granted, about 70% of interim uh, uh, clearances are actually uh, make, you know, make their way to a final clearance. A fairly small 20 to 30 percent are, are denied. So most people who are, go through the clearance process um, don't put themselves in it if they know that they've got a background that would prohibit them from actually getting it in the first place. Well, gentlemen, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice, from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi, my co-host. And with us today is National Security Attorney Bradley P. Moss from the law office of Mark S. Zaid, PC. And Evan Lesser is a co-founder and president of clearancejobs.com. Right before the break, we've been talking about security clearances and, and some of the consequences. But 
Is there any consequence to President Trump arising out of uh, 30 failed uh, clearance issues? Or how do we know that he's not still sharing information with these people that have, have lost their clearances? I don't know if... I don't know if we will ever truly know for certain what the president discusses with some of these individuals like Jared Kushner who've had their interim access downgraded. I think we have to, just in good faith, assume that he is at least trying to comply with the reduce with with these restrictions. Obviously, Jared Kushner, for example, lost access to the presidential daily brief, which was something he was able to see a copy of each morning when he still had his top secret clearance with SCI access. Now that he's been reduced down to secret, he no longer has that access. Someone with only a secret clearance cannot review the PDB. But beyond that, I mean, there's a limit to the extent of how you can micromanage a president in that sense, because the president has unequivocal constitutional authority to discuss any classified information he wants with anyone he wants. The only limits on that, the only restrictions are political. There are two political restrictions, and that's the 25th Amendment and impeachment. Outside of that, there's no legal or constitutional restriction on the president from discussing everything he just read in the presidential daily brief with Jared Kushner every single afternoon. If he wants to do that, he can do that. What is the legal process uh, for somebody, let's say, outside the White House, somebody else who's denied a a security clearance? Uh, You talked about adjudication of their denial earlier, Brad. How do they get to that point? How do they challenge it, and what kind of a process do they go through? Sure. So the executive orders that set up the clearance process also set up the appeals process if your access is denied. Uh, The way it was set up is that the adjudicating entity will issue what is generally called a letter of intent or um, a notice of determination. The terminology changes from entity to entity, Uh, but it'll outline the specific allegations that are being used as the factual basis to deny or revoke your access, and it'll identify the particular adjudicative guidelines that uh, were implicated by those factual allegations, whether it's foreign influence in terms of exposure to foreign contacts and foreign businesses, whether it's alcohol in terms of having an alcohol condition or past history of alcohol abuse, if it's drugs, if it's financial problems, if it's psychological issues that have not been properly addressed, uh, if it's the past history of mishandling classified information or misusing government information systems, uh, anything along those lines, they'll outline those details for you and outline then the steps you take. Generally speaking, and it depends again between agency to agency on which happens first. Usually the first level of the appeal is a strictly written submission to the security office. Uh, You can provide any supporting documentation. You can outline why you believe these various factual allegations are either inaccurate or have been mitigated. And the adjudicative guidelines provide various explanations of mitigating factors. If that first level appeal is unsuccessful, you generally, speaking at that point, go to a second level appeal, uh, which is before a senior panel, caveats that certain agencies do it a different way, but generally goes before a senior panel of officials from the agency uh, in a personal appearance in which you make your case in person and try to persuade that senior panel that the security decision was erroneous and that you should, in fact, be granted access. If that fails, that's the end of the process. This is a strictly administrative process. There's no right to judicial review. 
Uh, there's no right to access to any classified information that might ultimately be involved, which does on limited but sometimes occasional circumstances come into play. Uh, and that is where generally we advise people to have retained counsel. It's all at your own personal expense. But that is where there's a small group of lawyers such as myself who tend to represent individuals across the intelligence community in uh, making these appeals. Do you see any threat to our national security arising out of this or of these issues beyond what we're, you know, obviously investigating in the Russia investigation that Mueller's in? Apart from that, uh, what are these security clearance issues due to our national security? You know, as far as national security goes, you know, some of the biggest issues on the, on the clearance process uh, is simply about timing. You know, presently, to obtain a final top secret clearance, you're looking at um, over 500 days. To obtain a final uh, secret clearance, we're looking at over 220 days. There are roughly 700,000 people awaiting investigations, um, with about half of those being initial final clearances, the other half being reinvestigations of, of existing clearances. So, you know, if you look at the national security aspect, I think one of the, the biggest problems out there is simply the, the time it takes to get people clearance because you can't get on the job, you can't do the work that you were hired to do until you have the clearance. Um, granted, some people are getting interims, but interim clearances, unlike uh, what we saw in the White House, are generally granted at the secret level. And there's only so much work that can be done at the secret level. Uh, the bulk of uh, positions out there um, that we see are at the top secret level. So, you know, the timing around obtaining clearances is surely a national security issue. There's simply not enough people to do the jobs um, that are required. Another issue around the timing is the fact that um, if someone is sitting for you know, six, eight, ten, twelve plus months waiting for their clearance to process, at some point they just get tired of waiting. Um, some of them get spooked, some of them get tired, some of them get bored. Regardless, um, they leave the process um, never to come back. Over the last really five or so years, the total population of cleared people has dropped by about 30%. In 2013, there were um, over 5 million people with security clearance. Now there's about 3.5 million. And, you know, the government, frankly, does not have uh, people to spare. So with the clearance process taking extremely long, people don't want to go through this long and time-intensive, rigorous process. Um, it's really creating a national security issue simply because we can't staff the national security positions that, that need to get staffed. So those security clearances are essentially transferable? I mean, once you have one, you can then move to another job and take that with you? Is that right? Yeah. I, ideally, um, that, yeah, that, that would be the case. But the government has had an issue with um, reciprocity between federal agencies for ages, uh, for ages and ages. The problem is, is that if you've got a uh, let's say, a, a Department of Energy clearance and you want to move to the DOD or you've got a Department of State clearance and you want to go to the FBI, it's extremely uh, rare that you can move from one agency to another and simply keep your clearance. Um, there are different um, investigative and adjudicative standards between agencies, and, and frankly, the databases simply just don't talk to each other. So once you have a clearance, typically you have to stay with the same agency unless you're willing to undergo a brand-new investigation with a brand-new agency. Yeah, and I'll supplement that. I mean, Evan's very much right. There is a serious problem with reciprocity, which was implemented through directive from the Director of National Intelligence trying to make it easier for people to be able to make clearances portable, basically, so they could go to other agencies as contractors or as government employees 
Uh, and there have been, to be fair, there has been some improvement. It's gotten somewhat better. But as Evan noted, there are certain agencies, and I'll highlight CIA here in particular, who are obnoxiously arrogant about how perfect their own investigative standards are and how often will abuse this process and say, we understand the reciprocity guidelines are there, but we don't believe this is an appropriate circumstance, so we're going to conduct our own brand new investigation and drag a person through six to 12 months of renewed vetting, despite the fact that they may have been vetted at that exact same level of access all of two years earlier. It's a very serious problem. It all comes down to some of institutional turf wars, and there's no real right of recourse, a legal remedy for people who get caught up in it. If the agency to which you're transferring uh, decides that they want to do a new investigation, there's no real means by which you can force them to accept your clearance. They can choose to play bureaucratic games and you kind of get just stuck in the middle. Well, it's really fascinating stuff. I'm afraid we're about out of time, and I do want to give each of you an opportunity to kind of give your your closing thoughts on uh, what we've been talking about today and uh, also let our listeners know uh, how they can learn more about your work and follow up with you. So, uh, Bradley Moss, let's start with you. Sure. Well, I think what we're facing with this current administration, and all administrations uh, start off with their uh, bumps and bruises as they get their sea legs, is a, a group of people who have no real prior understanding of how the government works and of how the clearance process itself requires such an invasive examination of people's backgrounds. And I think they're struggling to this day, 14 months into it, to truly get their uh, wrap their head around it and to figure out who's going to get cleared and who's not. I think they're finally, at last, making some real headway on bring resolution to that initial set of people who came on, such as Jared Kushner, in terms of getting to a final decision one way or the other of who will have clearances and who is going to have to leave the administration. But this problem exemplifies why for so long we've always warned about bringing in completely brand new individuals with lengthy, extensive backgrounds overseas who don't have any prior experience dealing with this world, not because there's anything wrong with them or there's any reason to question their loyalty, but just because the vetting process for people with clearances is so strict, it is so difficult enough for people who've been in this world for years, that it's truly a problem in trying to bring in these individuals, such as a Jared Kushner from the outside. Uh, if anybody ever has questions, I always tell people, always consult a lawyer. It doesn't have to be me, but always consult a lawyer if you're ever going to go through the clearance process. It's easier to do things up front. It's a lot cheaper than if you get denied. I uh, can be reached at brad at markzaid, M-A-R-K-Z-A-I-D dot com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter. It's Brad Moss E-S-Q. Thank you very much. And Evan Lesser, co-founder and president of clearancejobs.com, your final thoughts? So, you know, I think one of the things that we did not um, talk about today were some of the misconceptions um, around security clearances. I, I think um, unless your listeners are uh, or have been in, you know, this industry, there are a couple of misconceptions that I'd like to clear up. I think it's, it's helpful for understanding the, the true scope of the issues we've been talking about today. You know, the biggest misconception is just exactly how much information someone with a security clearance actually has. You know, if you have a clearance, you know, I always say it's not like the movies where you can uh, walk up to a computer terminal and just start viewing um, endless classified information. You know, your clearance level is directly tied to your job and the classified information you have access to is only enough to do your job. 
everything is compartmentalized to, to some degree, um, even at the lower clearance levels. So, you know, in fact, some people who are are, are cleared um, actually have no access to classified information at all. For example, um, you know, the person fixing the air conditioning in the Pentagon or, or the, the, the sous chef in, in the White House are both cleared, but they don't have any access to classified information. So I think that's the first thing to clear up. The second big misconception is exactly who has clearance. And, and I kind of alluded to it a second ago. You know, the, the movies and popular culture makes us think that it's all cloak and dagger kind of stuff and that the most you know, common security cleared person is, is some spy or an intelligence analyst or, or some high-level presidential advisor. The reality is, is that the bulk of people with security clearance, the most typical people, they're doing accounting work. They're doing IT work. Um, they're doing um, engineering. Um, we call them secret squirrels on the clearance job site, and they're just really your average office worker who happens to work for or with the government. Um, in terms of getting more information uh, about security clearances in general or looking at some of the job opportunities, um, our website is uh, clearancejobs.com. Thank you very much. Well, well, Bob, that brings us about to the end of our show. Do uh, you have any final thoughts you'd like to wrap up with? No, I don't. I, I thought this was really fascinating. You know, the, the security clearance process is something uh, I don't know a lot about, uh, and I learned a lot during this conversation, so I really appreciate the uh, thoughts and insights of our guests. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Great. And thank you very much. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. This is Bob Ambrogi on behalf of Craig Williams and everybody at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.